everyone. Welcome back to A Perspectives. I am Martina and we have my wonderful co-host, Lisette. And we are back uh, part two with Carmen, um, really just picking her brain. We're learning a lot of new stuff. If you have not watched part one, please go back and watch it. It's really good. And, and you know, it's things that, I mean, all of us on this um, video right now are all in different sectors of, of, of healthcare. And um, it really has been like shocking a little bit to me and Lisette to hear some of the things that we were talking with Carmen about in, in the last video. And this video is also gonna be good. So go back and listen to that one or watch it or do both. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, we're just gonna continue the conversation. Lisette, where did we, cause I know you were making notes. <laughs> Well, I know that we ended sort of around uh, a phrase that uh, Carmen said, you know, like uh, patient-centered care and yes. what and what that what it means. And I think I think it's talking about like in the ideal world what it would look like. Uh, and I think we were kind of more talking, you know, maybe explaining like what does it really look like and and what are really the barriers to that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think maybe that'll just be a, a great way to kind of kick kick off this uh part two to just kind of go from that lens of I really want to hear like what ideally is patient-centered care Carmen like what is like if you were like this is sort of the perfect scenario of what it what it should be and what it looks like I'd love to start there and then we can come back to the reality of reality what it, <laughs> what it looks like you know what what does it look like from like your your perspective mm-hmm well, I think uh, patient-centered care is continuously evolving. I think uh, right now we're in a place where uh, we are leveraging technology to help enhance patient-centered care. Uh, and I think uh, the, with the pandemic, a lot of places have transitioned to telemedicine, which has been super useful to certain people. Uh, and I think that that's something where Yes, it's patient-centered for certain people, although it doesn't really give you the same effect for others because there's a lot of, uh, you know, the technology gap is there, um, there are language barriers, there are device, uh, you know, inequities, there's broadband inequities, so all of that plays into the situation. But I think ideally, I think the concept is that you're providing care uh, with patients engaged in the care that you're providing and that you're uh, being cognizant of where the patient is and you're really meeting them um, where they are. And it could also be you know, uh, through the lifespan. So the patient-centered care for a pediatric patient uh, who's under the age of 10 is different from an adolescent patient, is different from you know, an adult, a young adult. And so you know, as someone ages, that also continues to change where you might see somebody who is um, aging might need more services and more, you know, tailored, uh, you know, services to them. And a good example um, is as somebody, as somebody is aging, they do need more services, you know, for just kind of like normal, natural uh, reasons. And it strikes me that both of you mentioned um, working with your parents to help them navigate the system. And so I think in an ideal world, uh, the healthcare system would have those navigators who are reimbursable to help 
guide the patients to throughout that care. Um, right now, um, like you, of course, you know, these are our parents and we love, you know, helping our parents, but you are doing work that to me, I think the healthcare system could be helping with. Um, if we had more community health workers, if we had navigators. Uh, but the challenge uh, is really difficult when, for example, if you have a language barrier, and uh, at, at our um, FQHC, uh, you know, 98% of our staff, you know, who are front, you know, patient-facing staff, they speak uh, Spanish, but once they're outside our walls, patients, you know, we don't have that control anymore. And they might have to go see a cardiologist or a neurologist or dermatologist who doesn't speak the language. Uh, and then when you look at, and then the language is so important to be able to engage in meaningful dialogue and to be able to understand what the care plan is. Uh, but oftentimes, um, patients are looking for somebody to accompany them to those visits so that they feel, I know how to navigate this big giant building that I'm being sent to. Um, I'm not going to get lost. I'm going to not have language barriers. I have somebody who can join me in that process. And I think that's something that the Affordable Care Act through Obamacare intended to try to do, um, you know, back in 2014, uh, but it didn't quite work out the way um, we needed it to because there's just so much coordination of care that's necessary. Yeah. Even the referral system, being able to have a patient make an appointment with a specialist outside of the primary care system is super hard. I myself have a hard time. I have to go see my dermatologist and had to wait forever to get an appointment. Um, and when I initially attempted myself, I was told that it was a one year wait for me to go see a dermatologist. And I'm like, I, I have unicaria. I'm like, I can't possibly wait a whole year to see a dermatologist. But I was able to fight back because I have, you know, I'm empowered to fight back. And I'm like, that's unacceptable. I need something way sooner. But a patient who doesn't know that they can fight back, you know, they're might suffer for a whole year because that's the soonest appointment that they were given. And so you really need somebody uh, to help with those referral process, the referral process. Um, and then the other piece that I think was a bit of a, of a miss with electronic medical records is that they just don't talk to each other enough. They do a little bit of communicating, but it's not enough. So when the patient finally gets to the specialist and the specialist sees them, the patients can't always um, really share why they're there. They might know here and there, but the specialist is like, I need more information to really make the most out of this visit. And so if there was better communication with electronic medical records, they would also be able to see the why the primary care provider sent the patients in the first place. Uh, and then they would be able to send the results of that consultation back to the primary care provider. But instead, it doesn't really work that way. We're still, we're still faxing things. We're still mailing things. And it's just uh, so antiquated. And that, that could have and should have been um, a resolution of electronic medical records. And that in and of itself, it's its own business, like EMR systems, yeah. because they're very expensive. They're very competitive. Um, and they build them in a way so that they could sell it to um, more entities, like different entities. So to the physical therapy system, to the dental system. So that's their incentive to be able to market their platform to um, different um, health entities. And so it just doesn't line up the way it's supposed to. And that's why you need all this extra 
Um, you have all of these extra resources placed in, but it's all still continues to be fragmented. So that patient-centered um, approach really falls short because you just don't have the right systems um, in place. There's too many systems to like wrap your, your, your hands around to really make it to really make it work. And so I think the concept is very idealistic. Like I think uh, it would be great if we could make patient-centered um, care work. It's just incredibly, incredibly challenging to do. One of the things that um, I was talking to Martina when we were off screen before we started recording was sort of like, I've been around in, in spaces where they're like, you know, hey, like, you know, in order to create that sort of patient-centered care and understand more of the patient needs, like, we can just have, you know, do a food insecurity screening, or we can have a social determinants of health screening. And, you know, kind of thinking if you have, like, again, if you haven't seen part one, this will kind of resonate if you have, like, to understand, like, well, who's going to do the, you know, that screening when you're kind of a limited on time to see the patient, mm -hmm. your, your nurse is not being reimbursed. You have people who are doing care coordinate, you know, coordination, but they're not being reimbursed and you're kind of wanting to take what you in your head, if you're not the one doing it could take, you, it, you know, you're like, oh, it's just a five minute, you know, questionnaire. But if I know my people, they're going to be talking to you and like telling you. <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm the same way. You start asking me, you know, personal questions, and you're kind of digging mm -hmm. into what's around me, and and those, and that's what you know a social determinants of health, a good social determinants of health screening mm -hmm. that kind of identifies what are your needs outside of the medical and sort of thing. Um, a good one will kind of dig into that and for you to understand. But I was like, that's another maybe 15 minutes with uh, a person that you're not even getting paid for, you're not getting, there's nowhere for you to be reimbursed for that. Um, if depending on who's giving it, like, and, and things like that, like who's, because the provider most likely will not be the one wanting to do mm -hmm. uh, the screening. Yeah. Uh, if I'm being honest from what I've just, you know, from my interaction mm -hmm. with the healthcare system and, and also it's like, so it's just very, like, I think it's, you know, like, but your thoughts around there, like, because I, I know that some FQHCs have incorporated them. They've incorporated them maybe with, like, fewer questions and things like that. Mm -hmm. But, like, how does that play into sort of that? It's a need, right, for that patient-centered care because you want to know. But how do you keep it ongoing when maybe you're not being reimbursed for it? It's really hard. It's, it's really hard. And we get requests from everywhere. So all the different societies will say you should be doing this type of screening uh, to just make sure that you're providing the best, the best preventive care possible. And, and we know this, like we know we should be doing more screenings. We know we should be catching more stuff. Uh, it's, uh, it's also, it's about two things though. It's about like who's going to do it and, and during what time. And then what are we going to do when patients screen positive? We really want to make sure that we have then uh, something actionable. You know, if somebody says like, yes, you, you just asked me about domestic violence and yes, you know, I do have, uh, there is intimate partner violence in my home. And so now what? So we need to be able to be able to take action on that. So we always try to be really thoughtful about um, what we're asking um, and what like, can of worms are going to be opened up from these conversations that we're having because we know that it's happening. Um, and so we just need to make sure that then we know how to take action. And I think what we try to balance is what are the things that we absolutely have to do that are like non-negotiable 
that we incorporate into a visit? And then what are the, some of the things where we know, you know, from data that is affecting our community? So, um, for example, right now, we really have concerns of the, uh, the violence that's happening in, you know, our communities. And when we look at adolescent care, we, uh, we are doing the type of uh, visits where we do the, what's called the, the heads interview, um, where we ask the parent to step out of the room. And then the pediatrician has one-on-one -on -one time with the adolescent to really dig into questions about like sexual activity, about depression. And so that also takes time. You have to develop rapport yeah. with an adolescent to be able, for them to be able to share with you what might be happening and for us, I actually think that the, that interview doesn't go far enough. Like we also feel that we should be asking about violence in the home, violence in the schools, um, gun, you know, guns in the home, because we think that all of that does affect, you know, our communities probably more so than others. But that's something that maybe uh, hasn't come down from the top that you absolutely have to do. So we also try to figure out what's what are some things that haven't come down that we should be incorporating because it's important to the communities that we serve. Um, so I think we really try to make sure that we're balancing that and and making sure that we are taking care of like the most important um, items and that we're also following up closely because we might not get to everything during the first visit, but during the follow-up visit, uh, we want to enhance what we did during the first visit. Uh, but then you start to also, um, that access to care, if you are seeing somebody three, four, six times a year, then your um, visit slots start to get booked. So then your panel of patients, mm -hmm. you know, begins to be smaller. So you don't, uh, then you don't have the opportunity to see newer patients because your panel of patients are already taking, all of your slots are essentially spoken for, uh, for the, the provider. So we really try to balance that, but it's hard, it's, it's tricky. Uh, and then we try to also be, um, you know, that continuity of care is also part of patient-centered care because if a patient sees a new provider at every visit, that they have to establish that rapport. They have to go through the whole medical history again. And so we really like to um, encourage patients to find a primary care provider who we really mesh with, who we really like, so that they could build that history. So when they come in for a follow-up visit, they know where to pick up versus having to start you know, all over again, which is a problem, can be a problem if you change your insurances every year for whatever reason or if you get bounced to a different uh, managed care organization. So it hasn't really happened during COVID, but pre-COVID you have managed care organizations that sort of like lure patients to like their plan. And then that might mean that they now have to change primary care providers someplace else. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, you know, luckily during the pandemic hasn't really been happening, but uh, just like all the things that really affect uh, your ability to provide patient-centered care. Yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts. I know I, I've been dominating. I just, you know, mine was really, I, I think I had a, another question for kind of a different, a different topic. So Lisette, jump in if you have something. Yeah. No, I think one of the things that when we think about health in America and more of like the status of it and the, the inequities that exist is not understanding what healthcare 
what it all encompasses right like mm -hmm. when, you, when you were you know when you know bringing up just for me is like because i delve a lot in the social terms of health that's one thing but when you think about violence and particularly when you, you live in a city like chicago where violence is all around you and then sort of continual and and there's different kinds of violence so it's not just the violence that you hear in the news but you know there's you know the violence that you just maybe experience at home and things like that and and to to kind of like i don't think i've ever i don't always equate it to healthcare but it is part of it you know and it, and it is there and and to think about how you know because of the inequities that exist in our systems how hard it is to to really help people right mm -hmm. to really kind of help them to really provide the the services that they need uh, whether you know it, it's just you know a band-aid or mm -hmm. uh, a mental health you know crisis mm -hmm. and, and providing that sort of thing because I think that falls into that and, and it, it just to me showcases how fragmented our system is when it comes to healthcare and how hard it is for not just the patient side of things, so not just the individual that's seeking, but how hard it is for those that are in the healthcare field that are that are you know the professionals that are that want to help the patient. Because I've seen mm -hmm. doctors and nurses that want to help you, but they can't because they are limited by the system. So it's just to me again, it's insane and, and crazy to kind of understand that, but also like. But yeah, I think that's sort of what I was just thinking as you were talking about, like how fragmented and and, and I know you all, like as far as the health center that, that you're at, like I know you all and 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 how much you, you care about the community you want to help. But to now to hear more of like there are barriers to what you can do because it's mm -hmm. just the way the system is not set up in a way to help our communities. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's saddening. Like it's just, it's saddening. It makes me upset and I'm like, just break it all out, just dismantle <laughs> it all, and let's start from... Build it back up again. Karma, <laughs> you touched on the uh, the um, violence, the uh, domestic violence, and it's, you know, I mean, this, this can go different ways, but it's like, so you do that screening, and someone is living in a household where they are being abused on a daily mm -hmm. basis, or, you know, you do one around, you know, a food insecurity and the child doesn't have adequate food to eat, mm -hmm. like, what do you do? You know, what mm -hmm. is that next step? Because that child's going to go right back into that home, mm -hmm. and, and the person being abused is going to leave that, you know, leave the clinic and go right back home with you. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's like, you know, healthcare is not, it's like, we will ask you the questions, but we won't, where's the follow-up? Mm -hmm. Where's the follow-through? Because of all this fragmented things that we have it's like how do you adequately get people to help they need in a timely manner because to me I would think if somebody okay if they just did this screening this person doesn't have any food next thing I would think okay well we have we have this organization that we work with they get you food today you know mm -hmm. but it doesn't always work out like that you sometimes mm -hmm. you have to go to different processes you may have to be on a wait list in order to get food because there are so many people going through the same situation. Mm -hmm. um, so it is true, you know, with a witless set, just saying, just tear it all down and just do it all over again. Although we know that is much, much easier said than done because mm -hmm. this is what we're talking about with the, uh, with the health records, 
it's hard. It's not just like you can stop all these systems that we have in place. And so I think for me, that's really, you know, kind of maybe turning the conversation a little bit, but how we've been talking about this, this um, transformation of care and how, and how the patient is the center of it and they need to be the center of it. And really just got me thinking, you know, um, how do we do that? Where do we start? You know, I know that again, that's a very broad question. Mm -hmm. And I already have the answer. No, she does. You know, I think I think we know the answer, but you know, how do we how do we implement it? Like, you know, how do we do it? And just you know, again, like I think talking about the electronic health records. Why is that so hard? Why is it mm -hmm. so hard for sometimes clinics and doctors to talk to each other? Like, I get it; they're busy, but some of this business is set up to to be orchestrated mm -hmm. because of the systems that we're in. But it's like. Why is it so difficult to connect these health records? You know, I know there's a lot of um, private private information, but there's a lot of also the business side of things as we've been talking about, because we do have these organizations out here selling certain things to different clinics and they don't want to talk to this organization and vice versa. And I'm like, where do we start with that? Because to me, like that's something that I'd be like, hey, both of us have the same patient. Let's just see, you know, it's like, I, I don't know, it just seemed like I can see, like, to me, it just can seem so simple, but it's not, it's not simple to do. It is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I definitely don't have <laughs> the answers. <laughs> Aside from saying, let's just blow it all up and let's start all over again. Um, right. <laughs> But uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, there would be so many forces against that, like the EMR system, that's a whole industry in, in yeah. itself. And so uh, they have just grown into like this, you know, mammoth. And I think they, I, I don't, I don't know. There's this like, we don't talk to each other. Like this is going to affect, you know, my business capacity um, if we, you know, change things. And so you need almost like the policy end to step in and say, right. this needs to be universal. And I think um, it also aligns with something from uh, a couple of episodes ago where you were both discussing and questioning why is healthcare a tie to, tied to your employment? And I think healthcare is tied to two things. It's tied to employment and it's tied to poverty. So if you are employed, well, because healthcare insurance really came from only the people who work, who go out of the home to work, um, are privileged enough to have health care because we need to make sure they're healthy because they're out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. So that really left out women, you know, because, you know, at the time it was mostly men who were going out to work. Um, and then, you know, children, like health care was seen as a privilege only for some, for those who were, uh, you know, earning. And that's never changed. I don't understand why that's the case. Why are car insurance and home insurance isn't tied to our employer. Why is our health insurance tied to our employer? It doesn't make any sense to me. And then on the other side, you have the other way that people can get insurance is they're either employed or they're living in such poverty that they qualify right. to have, you know, state, you know, federal-sponsored insurance. So those are like the two qualifiers to have health insurance. And it just seems like that's a problem, you know, in in and of itself. That I think um, it really eliminates some people from being able to, you know, get and stay healthy. And 
I think uh, there's just so many different like facets that really need to be talking in order to kind of work together to come to this universal place where everyone should have insurance um, and our systems should flow freely. Like we shouldn't even have such a system where uh, insurance determines whether or not you need specialty care. A primary care provider should be the one with the patient having that conversation and deciding, yes, I need this advanced level of care now, but it shouldn't be the payer who says, let me take a look at your chart based on those signs and symptoms. Yes, I'm going to go ahead and like, you know, flag you through. Like, that's not how it should work. Like, what do they know about what symptoms a patient is having? Oh, yeah. Yes, to everything you said. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Especially the policy. The policy is one we do always talk about. Yeah. One thing you brought up sort of, and I I don't think I equated in around being so poor that you qualify for healthcare that's the only other way like the only other sort of way and and you have this middle section that doesn't qualify because they're not poor enough mm-hmm. um and then they may be working in places where they don't offer health mm-hmm. insurance and they're either still part of but you or they just you know don't have a job and all these things and it, it's this spectrum of like if you're employed and you are fortunate to be employed in a place that offers you you know, full benefits and your insurance. And also like, is their insurance good? Cause then you have, you know, and can you, or can you afford to pay for the good insurance if you are employed? Like, can you afford to take the, the bigger pay because you're going to get, you know, whether it's PPO or and all those things that cover everything, you don't have to worry about referrals and things like that. That's mm-hmm. a whole other thing. But the thing that, that, that caught me is sort of being so poor that you, you know, qualify for you know your state kind of health insurance and i'm thinking of like just in the city of chicago who those people are and it's mostly black and brown communities here in chicago who will most likely qualify for that and and i'm thinking of like how where historically where did that like how does that even come into play when i think like i'm thinking of medicaid you know mm-hmm. and, and sort of what you know does race play into that system like how does that you know from your point of view does that like is there like is it a racist system is it something that you know it does race play into it like is that part Mm -hmm. of the the problem when you think of something like like medicaid i mean i think so because when you see the who that like you said the beneficiaries are Mm -hmm. in chicago like let's not even looking at like nationally but in chicago you see who is eligible for Medicaid? Who is eligible for WIC? Who is eligible for TANF? It's like the same folks who are eligible for these systems. Uh, and so then they get like locked in to, you know, this uh, eligibility criteria. And then where they get to go for care also has, like there's a pool that they swim in. Like these are the where you can go and get uh, that care. So sometimes the, where they can go to get care are systems that are strained because there is like an overfilling of that pool um, into those systems. So the ability to receive that higher quality care um, is then um, affected because you have so many people swimming in that system. And so you, you start to see like the quality of care just not up to par at places where they're not um, as overbooked with patients. And so the, the access to care is, you know, 
uh, three months away um, versus it could be, you know, next day or even same day in some cases at other places. So you see delays in care start to happen. And with chronic conditions, if you delay care, you know, you are going to um, be in that like uncontrolled status where you might have more consequences, um, where uh, now you're going to need more medication, you're going to need more follow-up and that hill to get better is such a higher climb, but it's because of what you have to work with. Like you were sort of told, this is like, this is the bucket that you belong in based on the situation that you're in. But we know that people are in situations because of structural racism. And so that, that is like where things start to, like where the root is, like the root cause of so many um, of these issues. And um, it's, uh, it's just uh, really hard to, when you start to think about and reflect on, you know, how the whole system is generated, like it definitely is, I mean, it is a, a structural racist system. It's, to me, it almost seems like, and government and policies are, are doing nothing about that. That is the issue that we're up against. And it's almost like, you know, there are a lot of grassroots organizations who are trying to help and do this work, but at the same time, you need something happening at this top level and we need to meet. And it almost mm -hmm. seems like we don't have Mm -hmm. anything that's happening at like the state or the federal level that's really going to change these systems. And I think it was one of you that said it's just a band-aid at, at times to, you know, just get somebody fixed up and get them out the door, if you can even get them in the door. Um, and it just, just seems to me like there's just this imbalance of where we need real change to come from. I don't see it. That's just me. I feel like mm -hmm. I don't see it happening from like a state, federal government level, but you do see it a lot of grassroots in the communities because uh, communities, you know, really do care about this and they really do care about the people that live in their communities. We definitely all see that. But at this federal, at this top level, you know, it, again, it's just, you know, they'll put out a policy. Okay, so if we get actually get a good policy, how do we get it implemented? How do we make sure that it's sustainable? It's like there's almost no, there's no follow-up. So how do we know that people are actually getting the care that they need in, a, in an adequate amount of time? That was a very broad statement. <laughs> but that's just <laughs> one of my takeaways from that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you bring up such a good point when you think about why it's not happening. And you look at sort of the capitalistic view of this country you know and you go back to that sense of like healthcare is a business mm -hmm. and who is more interested in continuing it to be that way and not change it you know you're looking at those that are making money out of it right those that are you know getting the millions of dollars out of our current healthcare system and who have the funds to lobby against any changes mm -hmm. right like you think about go back to like when, you know, the Affordable Care Act came out, right? And so like, it was meant to be one thing. And by the end, it was something so like, very little like help. Like I, it was like, I don't think this is what Obama had set out to do, but because there's so much money thrown behind those that are interested in keeping our healthcare system the way it is, 
and, and not allowing for that, you know, whether you call it universal health care, whether you call it, you know, that like not allowing, you know, things to be how they're supposed to be to allow people to, for everyone to have, like, I 100% think that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. Like I think everyone deserves to have access to, to good quality healthcare when they need it, whenever they need it. Like it just, it, you know, it should be there for everyone and we all should have access to it regardless of how much money you make, regardless of, you know, you know, all those things that are currently in place, like, you know, insurance, health insurance to me shouldn't sort of exist in sort of a, uh, in the way that it exists here in, in the U.S., but there's just so many big lobbyists out there that are funded by, you know, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's others who just have a vested interest, whether it's those that have, you know, the EMR systems, right? The electronic medical records who are like, no, if you if you all start talking to each other, I'm someone's going to lose out, right? Someone's going to yeah. lose out in this game and it ain't going to be me. Like, it's not, and it's placing money above just humanity, right? Like human care and the caring of your fellow people. And I think that's to me why I don't see it happening. I, I think there's, there are policies that are sort of put out there that, you know, legislation that's like, yeah, let's try to do it. But by the end, it's, it's very, it causes very little, very little impact in the change. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, we tried, here's what we could, you know, do. Good luck with maybe in a few years be able to do something different. It's you know? almost like you're just doing it to say that I did something. I tried. That's it. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the insurance companies also have some type of like hold on the consumer as well, because mm -hmm. I was pretty taken aback during COVID when, um, you know, insurance companies were told you had to pay for COVID tests, you had to pay for COVID vaccines. And I was kind of taken aback by patients who would say to us, like, why are you asking for our insurance information? This is supposed to be free. And they almost didn't want to give it their insurance information because they see that as an association within their premiums going up at some point. And they were almost like defending the insurance companies, like this is supposed to be free from the government. And I remember thinking, like, this is definitely free for you. Uh, it, it is free for you. The, the government is giving us the vaccines, but we have to pay for the people who are giving you the vaccine. You know, we have to pay for that staff member, for the nurse, for the medical assistant, for the supplies that are associated with booking the appointments, for the space that we're using to get you vaccinated. All of that is an additional cost that we, that we, um, that we have and that insurances, they should be paying for them. Like, like this is going to be free for you, but the insurance needs to pay for the costs associated with keeping you healthy. And they do have an incentive because they're not trying to pay those COVID hospital bills. You know, they'd rather pay for a vaccine, you know, in a heartbeat. It's like why they happily pay for a flu shot because they also don't want you to be in the hospital for, for that reason. But I did think that the insurance companies were nowhere near vocal enough to tell, you know, the, you know, patients that, you know, this is going to be, you know, where we got this, like we're covering this, you know, and I think that they really should have done that because otherwise we had patients defending, they're like, no, why does my insurance have to pay for this? Or why do they have to pay for this test? And it's like, because they have to, like they're the ones 
you know, who you're dating. And you're, I thought you have insurance. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And we were sort of the bad guys. Like, the, you yeah. know, we were sort of seen as, as, as the bad ones there for trying to recoup the staffing costs and trying to recoup the space costs, you know, of having like mass vaccination sites. So it was just really an interesting dynamic to, to just see play out um, and just like the, the perception of what insurance is intended to do and the consequences of actually using your insurance. Uh, so similar to like, if you're in a vehicle accident and you submit a claim, like your insurance goes up, that's sort of the perception the same um, when it's really just the insurance companies making sure that their profits are not eroded through this new service. But the, the, comp- the companies, they had the had saved so much when COVID first started because they weren't doing elective surgeries because people weren't going in for mammograms. All of that was, you know, in helping their bottom line when all of those services stopped. And so um, anyway, I really felt like telling you know, our patients, like, please don't feel sorry for, for them. They're okay. Yeah, they'll be fine. <laughs> I gladly gave my <laughs> Here, bill them. No, bill them. Let them do their job. You I pay a monthly right premium now. for this purpose. Exactly. <laughs> and that's so true. Insurance companies, they made so much money at the beginning of this pandemic. Um, and, and to me, it's almost, you know, I think talking about having having to give your insurance for to get that free free test or that that free bo- uh, that free booster shot to me again that kind of comes into like why isn't our government <laughs> making sure that these things are covered like you know why why should we have clinics um, having to come out of their pocket for these things like this is this is global. This is, you know, something that's affecting all of us. And this is just a pandemic. I mean, even if we were not in a pandemic and still thinking of these things, this is where I feel like governments, they are allowing these big pharma or whomever to be able to operate like they do. And also with these huge, huge insurance uh, companies, they're just being allowed to operate this way. Like nothing is blocking them from treating patients and, and clinics of the way they are. And there's no one saying like, you shouldn't do this, this is wrong. This is why it's just continuing happening. Um, so it's just, it was just interesting to hear that, that you had patients who are actually blaming you all, like, no, I don't wanna give you my insurance. It's just, again, to be able to hear that this is actually happening. Like they were almost, you know, please don't feel sorry for them. Don't feel sorry <laughs> for insurance companies or, any of them, they are making loads of money, whether we were in a pandemic or not, but they're making mm-hmm. loads of money. Um, yeah, I just, that's so fascinating. <laughs> and, and to your point where like, you know, the, the, the hold that the insurance company has because people don't understand insurance. Yeah. Right? Like, I think, I think, I don't know, if, I don't know if society, insurance, whoever has made such a, a good example of people, like has done a good job of ensuring people don't know how insurance works yeah and how what what it's meant to do how it operates because like i have this conversation with anyone like i know i pay my premiums i understand sort of my deductibles i understand but but there's still things i'm like i don't know exactly what they do or how this all works or how it like they want you to be confused (laughs) so it's it's a thing of like they've done such a good job of people of making it so either making it seem like it's complicated, maybe it's not complicated, I don't know, 
at this point but i was like they made it seem so complicated people are like and eh, i'll just let it do its thing i'll get the bill and then whatever and right. whatever happens happens because i think that's usually what people do they're like unless it's a huge bill and then you call and you're going through like person to person and you're trying to figure out but like it just makes it i'm not surprised that people were like no because they're like <laughs> because there's we have such limited knowledge yeah of how the insurance really works that we're like no the government's covering this like that's not this is it's not the way but to hear it like but it makes sense because we're like we're not really taught of how it all works at the end of the day yeah. yeah, that's true. That that makes me kind of giggle, Liz, because I just had, um, I got an explanation of benefits, like a bill. Uh, well, it's an EOB, so it wasn't a bill bill, but it was from lab, like lab tests that I had, had gotten done. And the bill was seven cents. That's how much I was being charged. And <laughs> I remember like, how, how did we land at seven cents from here? Like, why did it... Tell me more about how this is what I ended up um, getting in terms of like my portion yeah. of the fee. Because like, <laughs> now I have to take time out of my day to log on to this portal to pay these seven cents. And otherwise, they're going to bill me in a month for 14 cents because there's a charge if you don't pay these seven yeah. cents. And so I just didn't understand. Like I was like, what type of formula or system was in place where the end result was me owing seven cents for this one lab test. And why couldn't you just cover the seven cents? Like <laughs> and you have me from Carmen. I have one because actually I see uh I see um an allergist and um I had a bill of three dollars and seventy four cents. Um one time so you beat me with seven cents. I was like it was it was so low that the allergist was like, you know, we'll just wait and add this to your uh, to your copay. Because they were just like, we'll just, you don't have, to, mm -hmm. please don't worry about this $3.74. This is not yes. a big thing. It's so, seven cents. Wow. Yeah. I and mean, yeah. why did you mail this to me? The right. cost to I, mail it to me. How am I getting this? Well, yes. <laughs> you paid more for this stamp. <laughs> it did. Yes. Like, <laughs> but like it's, it's just the thing of like, you know, how really... I think just our, our society, you know, because I think obviously our government is, has its own biases and preference of who they're going to support and who they, uh, because they do receive money and all these things. And that's just the reality of our, our country. And, you know, we can go into the whole two-party system and all those things that kind of encompass all of it. But, you know, it really is such a, it makes me laugh, but it's also like, oh, here we are another sort of just reason why it's so hard to get that you know healthcare for all mm -hmm. uh kind of aspect of it but um i think one of the things that we, we touched on a little bit was sort of the, the transformation of healthcare and you know and, and what that kind of you know looks like you know but you know to to kind of go on that lane like what does health equity look like you know what 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 is it like what does it entail is it is it you know just everyone having health care is it more than that like from your point of view Carmen like what what does health equity look like to you like you know mm -hmm. kind of going down that lane yeah so I feel I 
I think that equity needs to be uh, baked into our system. Like, I don't think that we need a branch of government that looks at it. I don't think that um, organizations need to have a senior vice president of equity per se. I think it just needs to be baked into the culture. I think it needs to be baked into the educational programs that we have, because I think it's going to continue to be a, a predominant uh, factor in the health status of people. And I think that that's really just something that's uh, that should be just kind of part of, you know, how you operate um, in the healthcare system. I, I think that there is, I mean, I'm, I tend to be an optimist, so I'm hopeful that uh, now, like, it, this topic has landed. Um, of course, it took COVID to make it so hyper aware to everyone. But I do think that it's in everyone's mind. And a lot of people are like, shoot, I don't know what to do about this. And I'm, I'm okay with that answer because I'm like, okay, well, I, at least there is some um, acknowledgement that this um, should be addressed, um, that there is some ignorance behind it that needs to be, um, that needs to be addressed. And so um, I'm hopeful that we can continue to have that conversation and look at all of our systems and how we make sure that we're not unintentionally you know, doing something um, that's causing harm. And so for telemedicine, I do see the potential to increase access to care through um, telemed services. Because if you have providers who are working telemedicine from home and they're conversing with patients like this, that opens up physical space in the clinics for there to be more providers on site seeing patients who need to be seen on site. So there is the potential to almost um, at least grow by a third your services if you have people who are off-site providing care. Who should be seen through telemedicine and what in what type of visits? That still is to be you know designed because we know that for certain visits, telemedicine works well and for others, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we really, really need to also keep cognizant of uh, making sure that we're not disproportionately allowing those who have access to technology uh, to be disproportionately receiving these, um, these convenient systems. Uh, so people who you know, have you know, technology, people who have better broadband access, people who have upgraded devices where video works better, uh, and then you know, any language barriers. So even like now, as like you shake your head, I get that you understand like what, uh, or that it's landing what I'm saying, but if you have a patient who's only discussing with their provider through phone, they might not see that. So you lose all of those physical cues um, that you would normally have in a visit. So we don't wanna lose that. We wanna be really careful with, with how we move that forward. Um, and I think, um, so there's definitely opportunity to improve access you know, for patients who wouldn't typically um, have access, but we have to be really careful and really thoughtful um, in, in the way that we do it. And now um, you get reimbursed for telehealth services where, right before COVID, it was like unheard of, like you were never gonna get reimbursed for, for this. So um, now you see the power of being of power where if from one day to the next, yes, all of a sudden telemedicine is reimbursable. So I think that there, uh, I hope that people do not forget um, what was able to be accomplished in a short period of time when the will was there. So I really hope that um, that really affects the quality of care in an equitable way for um, patients. Um, moving forward, and I'm hopeful that telemedicine systems um, work for all and not just um, give convenience to a certain group 
of, of people. Um, so I'm going to try to stay focused on, you know, what we can do now. And of course, you know, share our experiences, you know, both from the provider side, but also from the patient side as well, because I think these stories need to be, need to be heard. And we want to make sure that we do everything that we can to create an equitable um, space for patients. Thank you for that. I think, uh, and Martina, I want you to think about it because I'm going to ask you too, what do you think health equity kind of looks like uh, uh, from your end, these conversations that we, we've had uh, today, but one of the things that I had mentioned, you know, when we were kind of taking a break uh, in between and off screen was when you talked at the last episode at part one, uh, sort of like the nursing, nurses not being reimbursed and what that looked like. And I, I had a moment where I was like, you know, you know, who developed these systems, right? They were white males mm -hmm. who developed these systems, who, who developed these things. And, and you kind of see that, you know, the, the white supremacy that kind of infiltrates so much of our, our a lot of our systems and, and understanding that, you know, because nursing was probably a field that for the longest time was women and in women's value is not really seen as that. So I think when I kind of, at least for the moment, because I agree with everything you said around health equity and what mm -hmm. it means, I think is really kind of understanding how these systems were created, how they were sort of mm -hmm. set in place and like, and who set them in place. So you're looking from a very white male centric point of view and sort of systems that really need to be looked at and, and seen as to like, okay, we understand that probably because of this white supremacy, because of this white male dominated kind of feel that it was when it began and all these things and and you know and there were physicians and the hierarchy right the hierarchy that exists uh uh in a lot of our uh different industries uh and sort of like here's the value that we place on on doctors and physicians and then this is who we think deserve to be reimbursed and who deserve to get what they get mm -hmm. and all these things versus and most of obviously at the time mostly they were all male like that's mm -hmm. who was seen and you know in a lot of places it's still it's still very male dominated uh field and, you, and, and the nursing kind of realm of it was like okay you're women <laughs> you your value is less and, and this is just you know whatever and all these things so i think it's it's really kind of taking that into consideration when you think about uh, health equity in general of like understanding sort of those systems and how those things have to change right because mm -hmm. now that you see it now that we see more of these you know when you think of like who are the community health workers who are your medical assistants who are your you know who are your potential nurses mm -hmm. most of them are going to be people of color mm -hmm. you know and the inequities and the health equities that exist in that are real like why are you why are we not seeing their value as much as others and i think that's another that's a, for me it's a different side of equity it's not sort mm -hmm. of the patients more of like the systems and how do you bring that equity into the systems that will lead to you having better outcomes and, and better health equity outcomes because you're you're gonna have people that reflect people that are gonna be valued you know you have these healthcare professionals that are gonna be feel like they're valued by the system so I think that's just a, a different kind of sense that I was just kind of thinking about mm -hmm. when it comes to equity but 
you know, Martina, I'll let you kind of see if you have any thoughts around. Y'all have solved means. the issue. You both of y'all have solved it. We got everything. It's <laughs> um, but I think, you know, uh, and not to be long-winded, I, I definitely do agree with both of you. And I think as we always say on, um, on this channel is that these systems are created exactly how they're supposed to be. They're benefiting the people that it needs to benefit or that it's it, it was expected to benefit and everyone else has just gone to the wayside. Um, and so I really think we do have to get to a place here in the United States. And Carmen, I, I believe you said this about having good healthcare is just a part of the culture. It shouldn't be something that, oh, well, because you have this insurance or you have this amount of money you make, okay, we're able to see you first and get you into the best hospital and get you the best care. No, we should have that for everybody. Why is it so one-sided? It does tie into this white supremacist patriotic way of how the systems run in the United States. And to me, it just, it just, I think we have gotten to a point, again, it took 2020, everything that happened there and everything that is still happening for like light bulbs to start going off for people. I think for us here, we already knew some of these things, but it took other people to be able to be like, yeah, this is really bad. Like, what is social determinants of health? I want to know more about that. You know, mm -hmm. why do we have so much violence in this community? And how does that tie to health? I think it really got people who were not necessarily working in those sectors or even living in those communities or having just grew up that way, really started to understand, or at least I think it, it really opened the door. It opened the door for people to kind of understand some of these issues. And so I just really believe we have to keep opening that door and really just looking at healthcare is like, this is a right. It's not a privilege. Uh, it's not something that you should just have because of the color of your skin or your economic status or your educational status. Um, it's something that everyone, to me, before you're born, when you're, when you're in the womb, this is something that you should have. This is just a part of life. It's just a cultural way of being just like everyone should be afforded an education, which is often a different topic too, because everyone doesn't always get mm -hmm. the best education. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Mississippi, so I know how the educational systems work. Uh, but it's like, you know, those things to me are just God-given rights, like education, healthcare, food. Like there's no reason in a country such as the United States where this should still be an issue. Like we're still talking about these things that we've been talking about for so long. And again, we've gotten better, I think a little bit at the time and it's gonna take more time because these things did not happen overnight. So we're not gonna solve this overnight. But I think the more people we can get to try to really understand, we all in this together, everybody just wants to have a decent life and everything that comes with that. Um, and so hopefully, you know, I'm going to be optimistic too <laughs> with Carmen, um, you know, um, and I think, you know, eventually, hopefully we will get there. And I just think if people just can continue to have the hard conversations, because they are hard, these are not fun conversations to sit around and talk about at times, but in order to get the country where we need it to be, uh, we got to continue to have the hard conversations and do the hard work. Like it had, like something has to happen with, for example, electronic health records. Something's gonna have to give, you know, in order to make healthcare better. I don't know what it is right now. I don't know mm -hmm. when it's coming, 
but like some things are going to have to change like things are going to have to change for us to do and get better so I'll say that so I think we're kind of at a point at wrap up so Carmen I just want to give you just a moment to sort of give you know sort of your maybe just like some final thoughts about you know the conversation we just had or just thing you know whatever you kind of want to maybe just say like oh I don't want to leave without saying this or I don't uh, mm -hmm. I kind of just want to close this out so just you know give you a moment to kind of just share a little bit before we kind of just uh, wrap this up yeah I think um I know we covered quite quite a few topics but I would probably say that um that behind the scenes folks are really trying hard to try to uh, not let all of these different uh, systems affect the way care is delivered to patients. And if, if you encounter as a patient a situation that seems a little bit odd, um, there's probably a reason behind why that's odd. So there's probably a reason why I got that seven cents bill. <laughs> um, and so I think um, like wondering why this situation happened like this, it's probably um, like there's a mapping that you could take behind why that certain thing happened. And so I would ask questions like, you know, be curious about like, why, why can't I get an appointment for 12 months? Um, why is that, is that I can't um, give this message to my provider? Or um, why am I not allowed to see like the nurse more often as I would like to? I think um, the answers that you might find behind that um, might be you know, pretty surprising. And I think for me being in this administrative role, a lot of the things that I've learned, I've learned because I tried to put something in place because it's what made sense. But then I had that barrier um, and that red tape that's like, no, you can't do it that way because of this. So I think um, asking those questions, like as you know, somebody who is in the healthcare system, like as a patient, and something seems odd, there's probably some type of like policy, legal, structural reason for why that actually occurred. Um, and I would ask questions, like I think it's you know, say like you know, why did this weird thing happen? And I think you might be surprised by by that answer. And so um, I I think us and the back end admin role should probably also do a better job at explaining why certain systems are the way they are, because then I think it would demystify some of the questions that patients might have um, about why we do things in a certain way. So this has been really helpful for me too, just to say like, oh, I thought this was like something that folks might have already known, um, but now I'm realizing that that might not be the case. And so we can also do a better job at explaining this too. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this has been really insightful for me too to just reflect on some of our systems. So thank you so much for the invite to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. Martina, any final kind of thoughts or anything? No, I just, again, I, you know, thank you, Carmen. Cause again, you know, I, mm -hmm. you know, like you just said, you're like, oh, these are things I thought people knew. And it's like, no, like this, you really just kind of, uh, opened up just like more ideas and things that I'm just thinking about. And I'm sure Alyssa and I are going to touch base <laughs> and like say, wow, like our mind was just blown about everything that we heard. But no, and I just, you know, I again, thank you for coming on because I think a lot of people, as we've all stated, they're not always looking at the behind the scenes. They're just wondering, oh, well, 
why are you telling me this? Or, you know, why can't the doctor do this? And knowing about how, you know, nurses are treated and things like that, and even the education components, I think a lot of things people just didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just thank you for that, for that insight. Uh, and now like, I'm very curious. So just, you know, start like learning, learning more myself. You know, there's still a lot that I wanna learn, a lot I wanna do. So thank you for coming on and sharing your time with both of us, our listeners and our viewers. And I, I do believe people will get a lot out of this, out of these, out of, out of both of these videos that you've done. So thank you so much. And I'll just reiterate the things, Carmen. I think, uh, I hope those that are listening and watching, um, just kind of learn some new things because I know I have, I know Liberty and I have, as we mentioned, uh, and, you know, I, I, I love sort of the, what you said, Carmen, of like, ask questions, right, you know, and, and, and sort of, you know, how, how can we be better asking the questions, how can we sort of be curious as to these things, because I think that brings transparency, that brings sort of, a, and, and it coming from, from the patient and coming from the community, you know, will hopefully bring about and, and sort of force change if we start mm -hmm. sort of like we want that transparency and you want that uh so appreciate you kind of just making that sort of a, a final focus because i think it, it uh it really is going to be a we always say it's going to be a top and a bottom kind of way to meet at the middle to create that change um to those that are watching and listening thank you again uh please you know subscribe if you haven't so you kind of get notified we have many plenty more episodes around this healthcare topic um i know that we are definitely gonna have carmen back in the future yeah. <laughs> for future episodes because i think uh um, we only i think scrape the the, yeah. the top layer with, with carmen of some of these topics so uh thank you all and we will see you next at the next episode bye everyone